it's about seeing that we have a faulty premise of uh, of having a missing trait by say you know they have this and they have that and I don't have that. So for me, it was oh they're outgoing and they're chatty and they're so charismatic and I'm so quiet and I realized that my quieter nature is actually very beneficial for the sort of work I find myself doing now. That's confidence coach Pauline Chung, who was not always so confident. And one of the ways that we undermine our own confidence is comparing. And I like to call that compare and despair. We'll get to that later on in the show. But first, hi, I'm Liz Solar, and welcome to Embark. I have a question for you. What would you do if you had unwavering confidence? For most of us, the words, be yourself, are pretty charged. Just who are you and how will you be received by others if you just be yourself? My guest, Pauline Chung, will talk about her own experience gaining confidence and how she helps other people become more confident to achieve what they want. Pauline Chung is a women's leadership speaker and coach. She's on a mission to show professional women how to trust their voices and create professional and personal success without conceding to that nasty people-pleasing and perfectionism. Despite 12-plus years as an international executive working with Fortune 500, C-suite, and senior-level leaders in the areas of strategy, marketing, and business development, Pauline comes from humble beginnings. She knows how challenging it is to step into the unknown and navigate the fear of failure and judgment. Her deep compassion for women wrestling with similar desires and demons helps her coaching clients and audience members break out of their fears and step into full visibility as their unique and brilliant selves. We're talking about stepping out of fear to step into what we love to do, how to be comfortable with who we are, so we create more inclusive and effective ways to lead. Pauline, welcome and thanks for being here today. We always hear the words, be authentic, be yourself. As well-intentioned as those words are, it can be scary to be authentic. First of all, are we often really authentic? And secondly, it can be scary for us to get real with other people because some people may not want to see those raw insecurities or adorable quirks we have, which can make us even more protective about revealing ourselves. We have this wish we'll be accepted for who we are, but but it's not always true. We get accepted. Yeah, that's a great observation, Liz. I, and I think I think it might be if we when we get comfortable in ourselves sharing the things that don't look so perfect to us or not so perfect about ourselves that others some may accept it some may find it very uncomfortable because they're struggling it might be for a whole host of reasons one of which they're struggling to accept it within themselves too because we've been so taught not to share any of this and some cultures even even more so right in in the chinese culture this whole thing about saving face. Which may not be so peculiar <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to any one group. Despite your own professional success, and from what I can see, you're a pretty together person, <laughs> oh, I would you. not say. Oh, Pauline is lacking in confidence. I just feel for her. But so much of what we do is putting on that brave yeah. face. Yeah, yeah. You have 
I think, had this incredible journey from your childhood being the other. Yes, yes. Talk a little bit about that, because there was some work that you did to maybe not feel so much the other and all alone, because I think when you're the only yeah, one, so so it can be a lonely place. Yeah, so thank you for asking, Liz. Um, so for me, I was, I, I grew up in a small, very white, blue-collar town uh, in England. Uh, my parents were immigrants, and so I was at a school where there was nobody else that looked like me. And it was made very clear from an early age that the way I looked, there was weird. it was weird, you know, whether it's the shape of my eyes, you know, my, my face being flatter. So there was some very cruel comments, for example, like, did you get hit by a frying pan? Did you fall down the stairs? So kids are lovely at that age, right? <laughs> so, you know, so for me, I, I picked up that it wasn't safe to be me and that, you know, it was safer to keep quiet, go along with what the bullies wanted, do well in class and the teachers would be happy. And also being the eldest daughter at home, you know, it was a uh, culturally, I was to take care of my four younger siblings. And so that made my parents happy and they were just trying to do their best too, now that I can see as a grown up. But the takeaway from all of that was that, I picked up this survival habit of pleasing others, of, you know, checking off the boxes for other people so that, you know, people didn't come after me, I didn't get in trouble, whether it's from the teachers or whether from the kids. And 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 so for me, it was, it was, you know, my race for other kids. Now I can see it, you know, someone with, who wore glasses as a child would get made fun of someone who had red hair or really extremely curly hair or they were tall and they were thin. So it was, it was a whole variety of things. Now I can see, and and, and I can see that so many of us pick up these messages from a very young age that it's, it's not good to be who we are, that it's hard to accept who we are because other people aren't accepting of it. Once I could see that was a message that we picked up from the environment that we grew up in, I didn't have to keep leaning into that so much. So you're this kid who lives in England in a small town. Everybody else is white. You're Asian. You're pretty distinct. Yes. And in some ways, it's a a very desirable thing to be other. You know, it's an exotic thing. It's a a (laughs) cool thing, right? You're from a different place and that has its own cachet. But when you're a kid, you don't really feel any of that. No. So how did you go from being that kid who is probably a little compliant, you know, um, very responsible from the sound of it? Yes. If you have parents who are like, you know, you're yeah. the one who has to take care of the, the other little ones. And so on one hand, you're accepting of w- whatever the treatment is, because you're probably taught, as many of us are, to be kind, even in the face of cruelty. How do you go beyond that to to do some of the very successful things that you did. Yeah, so I was like that for most of my childhood through my teens. And it wasn't until I went away to college that it felt more diverse. You know, I saw I saw people who looked like me. I saw people of other nationalities. Um, so it was more a melting pot environment by the time I got to college. A lot of those fears kind of started to melt away a little bit. But it was when I graduated I graduated at a time when it was in recession. That that was like 
really my wake up call. I, I graduated in chemistry. It wasn't something that I was passionate about. Having done an internship, I realized I didn't want to spend my life in a laboratory. I mean, they do great work and it was great people, but that, that wasn't for me. And so big question mark, what do I do next? I was getting out of an on again, off again relationship with, with my, uh, my first serious boyfriend back then. And it wasn't healthy at all. And so I let that go. Finding a job was hard since I didn't want to go into the field. I was graduating it. You know, I was trying to please people. I, I checked off the college box, you know, I, I, um, I was being good, but like, I didn't have a job. I didn't have any money saved. I didn't have a relationship that was going anywhere. So it was, I guess that was my first experience of like being at rock bottom, trying to figure out what next. Which seems like a very 20 something thing to do. (laughs) It was really confusing because I spent all my life listening to other people give advice to me, telling me what to do and and thinking and, and thinking that they all knew the answers. Given at that point, nobody really had a good answer for me. What happened was that I had some friends that were from Hong Kong and Asia was booming at that time. We're going back to the 90s now, the uh, mid-90s. And I thought, why not? I've always wanted to travel. Let's just, I, I don't have anything to lose. I was able to borrow some money from a, a relative and I bought a one-way ticket Landed myself in Hong Kong, had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, I took on odd temporary jobs through an agency. And one of the jobs that I got assigned to was for, for, for Disney. Uh, as an admin, it opened up a new world for me going there. I mean, the first day the job I had was was to, there was a stack of almost two feet high of, of, of papers that needed filing and sorting out. I like to think that I have a good work ethic. So I just took it on. I, you know, whatever is given to me, I'll take it on. But in addition to doing my job, I was curious. So I asked questions. I went beyond, you know, my people pleasing tendencies came out again. But in this way, it, it paid off through a series of, of events. I was able to land myself uh, an entry level job in marketing there. And so that's how I got taken on to a different path. It dawned on me that like, oh, I can just go and try things out. They might work. They might not work. But, you know, I had nothing to lose then still at that point. And it's interesting when you don't have anything, how much freedom you have at the same time, because you're not tethered to anything or any kind of status or level that you have to maintain. At the same time, though, you know, you can frame it in terms of you didn't have anything to lose and you were free to do whatever you wanted. And because you were free to do whatever you wanted, you did choose a certain thing that actually put you in a position where you had to grow out of your shell or rise to the occasion and show some more confidence. What was it like behind the scenes as that was happening? It's it's easier when someone else puts an expectation, like they've set, a, like well, it's a deadline or a project or some kind of outcome they want. I can chase after that. <laughs> I can get it done. When it's my own, I tend to be a lot more judgmental around it. I had some great people, talented people around me that I could learn from. Very much an observer too, to see how things are done, how can it could be made better. I guess my chemistry background came out that way. I'd like experimenting in that way instead. The part that I loved the most was uh, the the job I was in was helping to expand the brand, the Disney brand across 
the whole of Asia Pacific. And so I would be a conduit between headquarters in the US and all the local markets in each of the different individual Asian countries, having to navigate different points of views, different personalities to try and find some common middle ground. Being an outsider growing up, that I could see different points of views and, 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 and feel what it's like to not be accepted to, in, in order to try and bring everybody together to some kind of level of agreement. That seemed to be a skill that, that, that came more naturally to me, I think, because I could see points of both points of view as I wasn't, you know, indoctrinated in a specific, this is the brand, this is the way our brand is. This is the way it has to go plug and play in every country like this. Now that there was ways we could, without diluting what was core and good about Disney, the Disney brand and valuable about it, but do it in such a way that it took into account what was uh, important and, and the ways and the lifestyle of people in each individual country, whether it was Indonesia or, or um, Taiwan or Singapore or Australia. You know, you talk about stepping out of fear and yes, people say you do it for love or for fear. And a lot of times we do things yeah. out of fear. It can seem like a catch 22. When I feel strong enough to do it, I'll do it. You know, when I'm not afraid of it anymore, I'm going to do it. But oftentimes the only way you're, you're going to overcome the fear of doing it is to actually do it. Right. How tough was it to step outside of yourself? And how do you help the people that you work with step outside of themselves when they keep saying, you know what, I'll do it tomorrow. I'm just not ready to do it today. Oh, I've, <laughs> I've worked through so much fear. I mean, you we're talking about 20 plus years of, of my own personal interest in, in personal growth. Just looking at what made the difference between people who actually say they want something and go after it and those that say they want something and just talk about it and not do anything and it's true for myself too it's not that we don't have the fear it's that we don't allow the fear to stop us fear has boiled down to me uh and very commonly in in, in a lot of my clients too it's it's fear of judgment so it's it's three main ones fear of judgment judgment uh, from others do they are they going to think I'm crazy doing this? Are they going to think I'm not good enough to do? You know, all of those uh, fear of rejection. What it means for us if we get a no, we make a big story around that. And then the third one is 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 fear of failure. Is that you have all this intention to uh, achieve something, go after something, and it doesn't work out. I think what stops a lot of people, and what stops me for the longest time. Uh, or, or made me hesitate until I figured out I was confident or enough to go do it. Or I thought, screw this, I'm just going to try. What it is at the end of it is that we all were attached to a specific outcome. We're attached to wanting that outcome, which is natural. The people that actually go and, and do it tend to let go of that attachment. Because at the end of the day, we don't really know if it's going to, you know, some things are in the cards for us and some, this is the part that feels a little woo-woo, but some things are in the cards for us, some things aren't. But what I've noticed is if you have an intention, you know, there's the strong underlying values uh, of why you want to pursue pursue something, usually you, if you keep going and not be attached to the form, it will work out. 
it might work out in a different form or a different avenue. So, for example, someone who who who's likes to paint, you know, they want to sell their paintings. They think I'll, I, I will make it if I get it into this particular gallery, rather than just saying they want to share the work with the world. And it may not go in that gallery. So the ga- that gallery being the form, right? They let go of that. Maybe it will. They end up selling it online. It's doing better that way, or it's doing better in another. You know, you've mentioned overcoming internal and external limitations. And sometimes I think we confuse or conflate what is internal and what is external. If we've had uh, failures, and perhaps it had to do with an economy or an illness or a life event that just prevented us from achieving something, it can still be internalized. How do you work with people on that? And how do you help them get clear about the things that they can control in the things that they can't? You, you know, you asked a great question. And that's one I do uh, sit with my clients with and, and have a look at for, for whatever specific situation they, they bring up and thing that they want. We, we look closely at, well, let's have a look. What do you feel is in your control? And what do you feel is not in your control? And it can seem like it's a depressing place to be in, but actually it's not. The, well, the good news is that's true for everybody. There's a lot that we can't control. Um, what's true is we never quite know what the outcome is. So we can make up all these stories about, oh, this isn't going to work. But actually you don't know. You don't actually know if it's going to work or not. So if you really want something, you, you you have to try it. If you don't try it, it, it really isn't going to work because you're not trying it. That, that's always kind of the cho- one of the very clear choices. If you try it, it may or may not work, but you will have some data back of why it didn't work. What was it? What can you do next? Well, it's that adage of you must be present to win. Yes, there's a little bit of tenacity involved in that. And also... It's a test of how much you really want it. Do you really want it, or is was is, was was is the is the essence in in achieving that thing? Is there something else that you want? That is a great point. I think sometimes we are fashioned to do certain things. We have certain talents that we might not even tap into. We may not even be aware of them because we're in pursuit of this one thing that we're doing because other people are doing it, or we had this expectation from right. our parents or our peers that we would do something or people just think, you know, you should really do that. And we're like, okay, I'll do that. And we find out I am not the great sculptor that I thought I would be. Not to say, you know, sure, pursue anything for the joy of it. But I think if you're looking for a certain amount of competency or regard for doing a certain thing, maybe maybe you should see where your strengths are. Yeah, 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 definitely. And then the other thing about not, trying things out is that uh there's this book written by gay gay hendrix i hope i remember it correctly but it's called the big leap and he talks about this concept of upper limit that we set ourselves an upper limit that we've checked off a few of these things on our on our, on our list of things to achieve and then we think okay maybe i should be happier where i am that i shouldn't be asking for more i shouldn't be trying for more and I've met so many people, you know, they're in their 40s, 50s, they've still got decades ahead of them, but they've kind of set themselves the upper limit. And, and 
they're talking themselves into being comfortable where they are when really there there is something that's brewing inside of themselves wanting to to, to get out but that's what I mean they, they they set that that mental barrier that I can't ask for more because I should be happy where I am if I don't become the famous um, successful playwright by the age of 35 it's all over yeah <laughs> so much of our self-regard is rooted in what other people think of us and we compare ourselves to other people in something oh yeah I like to call compare and despair you know and social media is it is not the enemy but it certainly underlines how easily it happens in our day that we look at somebody who is showing their good right. day or showing showing their idea of what their their day is which may not even reflect their inner reality but we're yes. we're looking at it reflecting on our own inner reality and feeling badly yeah absolutely i um actually wrote a blog piece on this about, about comparison and you know a couple of the ones one of them is that especially with social media we're comparing what people are showing from their outside with what we're feeling on the inside and so it that that's usually a snapshot in time what you see you know all those great pictures you don't you don't see the times when you know, there's a half a dozen of things that went wrong during the day that didn't put a smile on their face. And so we think we can easily create a story for ourselves. Their lives must be so much better than ours. Whereas I'm sure if we took the time to look at ourselves, we have snapshot moments of really great times and great moments. But we, and then another thing about comparison is when, especially when we're or admiring someone who's doing so much better in, in, in something that we would like to do or like to start doing. That's not really a fair comparison either because we don't actually know how many years of work and effort they've put to get to where they are. So we're comparing, we might be comparing the start of our journey on, on this particular path to they might have been on it for five, 10 years uh, or even longer and so that's not a fair comparison for ourselves, you know, and, and, and we end up making ourselves feel terrible because of that. Well, we look at people and say they make it look so easy and they make it look so easy because they've worked so hard yes. to get things synthesized. Somebody who gives a great speech, it's probably not, you know, whatever the 20 minutes that we, we've heard, it's probably 20 or 30 years of giving speeches and trying different techniques and speaking to different types of groups. So I'm getting help too. Um, I remember Susan Kane, who wrote the book about the power of introverts. Um, I listened to her on a podcast. And and I also know that a lot of these big TED speakers, they, they get they have a speaking coach and a performance coach and someone to help them tighten up the, the actual talk as well. So there's a lot of help that goes into it. But we see it as just one person out there doing things flawlessly, which they, it's not their first time and they didn't do all it by themselves either. So, yes, again, again, not a fair comparison. And I've been there. I've done that where I think, wow, they, they're so great. You know, we are our own worst enemies when we say, well, it's going to be kind of weak if I ask for help or, you know, approach somebody about a favor or, you know, ask for more information. And I think it's a very strong thing to be able to say, I need help. Yeah. Please. Yes. I'm a neophyte. I I don't understand this. How do I work it? 
the the more I've dug into it, the more I see that the people who who have been successful, they arm themselves with not not consciously, but they've gone around and and they they they've been open to help, whether it's from you know having friends and family to support and nurture them to having mentors to help guide them in the path um, and, and advisors and people they can consult with to, to get input. I don't think any of us do it alone. It, it's, it's, it's a bit of a myth. And I think sometimes people who are big personalities out there kind of hide that they have this whole army behind them helping them you, you, you i mean you look at some of these hollywood celebrities they have a whole army of personal assistants you know stylists and <laughs> speech writers helping them with all of this yeah exactly in in your work with people do you find since you brought up introverts do you find there's a correlation between confidence and being extroverted or introverted, or is it pretty much the same for all of us? Good question. I don't feel like I have enough data points. I only have my personal opinion. So I'm just going to caveat that to, to disclaim that there is any real scientific research behind what I I'm won't saying. hold you to this. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, and generally, introverts, they don't necessarily lack the confidence, but it's some, some of them do have a quiet inner confidence, but they don't feel the the urge or the the necessity to speak of as much and for extroverts it just comes naturally they may you know to to to, to speak and to engage more um and there's a difference between introverts that are more shy and reserved and introverts that just they can engage but they just um when they need to recharge they want to recharge away from everybody as opposed to getting energy from others I, I am an introvert myself. I tend to be on the more reserved end. I am quite happy when in a group because it's my nature and probably why it makes coaching so easy for me is that I have a tendency to spend more time in listening mode and observation mode. And, and I only tend to speak up when there's something new to the conversation to add rather than just adding to the conversation to, you know, the same point, but said in a different way. Right, because we've both been in those groups where a question is posed or a challenge and people will essentially regurgitate what the person before yeah. them has said because they want to be able to contribute something. When right. sometimes the best thing to contribute is your your listening, your presence and that that tends to be where I I sit. <laughs> well, that's a good place to sit. Now I'm okay with it. Now it doesn't I don't allow the people's judgment to get to me. And then I have to feel I have to contribute something just for the sake of contributing. Right. How how do you help people find their voice, particularly in a, you know, maybe an executive situation or a high level situation where people are exchanging ideas and it's really important for them to come equipped with right. something of their own and yet, uh, you know, have some integrity and be distinctive about what they say? in order to change that i'm doing my part <laughs> by getting from behind the scene and coming out and doing things like talking to you and I, I i never thought i'd be somebody who's out there giving talks but i've since given a couple of talks i've been inviting and invited to another one this weekend to help a group of uh, underrepresented aspiring professionals in the aerospace industry so it's it's 
you have to go first. So in order to give permission for others to, to come along and be able to do that too. So I'm doing that part of my my job, my calling is, is to do that. And so the two pieces are, I, I tend to help the individual see that for themselves, see what's important for them to share and have them recognize what's the cost of not sharing, not just the cost to themselves, but to the cost to the work that they, they are invested in, that are engaged in. And then on the um, organizational side, the institutional side, uh, corporations, there's other organizations that's helping them in that part. And there's still a long way to go, but things are slow, like maybe a, a glacial pace changing in terms of running meetings differently in order to allow space to have the quieter ones contribute because they know and they've seen in other uh, aspects, uh, in, in other situations that they can contribute. And so give, giving them space to say something rather than everybody fighting for air and hopefully we'll make progress, you know. What is a bit of advice a mentor gave you that you like to pass on to people that you work with? It wasn't so much a mentor. I remember this piece, and I'm saying this because I, I, I was a quiet person. It was during my days as a consultant, the, the partner told me at the debrief of a meeting that we had with, with um, the senior executive, executive team, the client team that we, that, that we met. He just pointed at me. He said, you need to speak up more. My thought was, okay, I'm doing a terrible job. Rather than, and it dawned on me later that, much, much later, that he said that because he thought I had something useful to contribute. Not because there was something wrong with me, but that he wanted me to speak up. I do replay that story quite often uh, to, to clients who struggle to speak up, but their work is, you know, immaculate. They they have so much great stuff that they contribute, that they are quiet, too quiet for their own good. And it seems to be, I mean, it set off a light bulb in me finally. And so I want to pass that light bulb on to others. And this is a good place to leave off today, except for next week, we're going to be back with a blog post you did about comparing yourself to others and the five ways that that plays out and maybe what you can do to work around that. And if you want to know more about Pauline and the work that she does, she's at paulinechungcoaching.com. And her last name is spelled C-H-E-U-N-G. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being with us today, Pauline, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for having me, Liz. This is fun.